electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. The latest data show the economy remains resilient, and so does the consumer. If that trend holds, and that's a big if, our economist sees two things happening in the market and at the Fed. She's here with her forecast. Plus, our market guest says the recent pullback in tech provides a good entry point, but there is one particular way to play it, to be a little more safe about it. He tells us what that is and what else he's buying right now. And we'll check back in with one office real estate player, the stock a bright spot in today's trading session on the back of earnings, the name, the CEO, and what makes the company so far resilient to higher rates. Let's start with the markets, though, and Dom Chu has our numbers. It's uh, kind of best to worst over there, Dom. Yeah, it is, Kelly. And to your point right now, as we're kind of looking at this whole thing, I've just been keeping an eye on this because if you look at the S&P 500, that down roughly 54 to 55 does represent session lows at this point. Even at the highs of the day, we were only down about three points. That gives you an idea of how we've been tilting so far today. So it has been negative. A lot of earnings headlines, specifically in tech and communication services, has been driving that downside. Now, the Dow Industrials also session lows off three quarters of one percent, 245 points to the downside, 32,790. Uh, for those listening on Sirius XM Channel 112, the S&P 500 is 4132 at those levels. The Nasdaq Composite really the underperformer because of that tech weakness, down 2%, 265 points, 12,556. I will also mention each of these three major indices is below that longer-term trend, 200-day moving average. We'll talk more about that, I'm sure, later on in the show. One other place to keep a close eye on right now as well, if you want to look at some of the downside action, look at the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF. You've often heard some traders talk about how Chip stocks have been a possible leading indicator for that overall technology trade. Well, even this particular ETF that tracks many of those major chip makers is, again, below its 200-day moving average or longer-term trend line. So something to keep an eye on there as well. As for some of the stocks individually that are driving the downside action, of course, earnings moves from Alphabet building on yesterday's losses as well. Even Microsoft, which had a, sh- a sharply update yesterday from a good earnings report, is down about 3.5% in today's trade. And of course, Meta Platforms weaker on the heels of its better-than-expected earnings report. And then all eyes on Amazon this afternoon, given what we've seen in this technology trade develop. So With earnings report coming out from Amazon, that could be something to watch as well. And to top it all off, Kelly, if this isn't something weird, so much we've been talking about this notion that bonds and stocks have been selling off at the same time, the death of the 60-40 portfolio. Well, on a day that we've now hit the session low in the stock market, we have hit session highs in the bond market, Treasury specifically, Yields have pulled back ever so slightly from the highs that we've seen recently, but right now we're at 4.88% for the 10-year note yield. So it almost feels strange, right, Kelly? Almost fundamental that people would be taking risk out of the stock market and then buying treasury bonds on the heels of it. 
It hasn't been happening recently, so that could be something to watch. Back over to you. Even as it ticks down again, 4876. Dom, thank you very much. Let's get to that strong third quarter GDP number. The real economy grew nearly 5% annualized, and that's the strongest pace since 2021 for the third quarter. We also learned today that big ticket durable goods orders rebounded. They also surged nearly 5% in September, while new jobless claims remain near historic lows. Despite all that, my next guest doesn't think the Fed will hike rates again this year. Joining me now is Blarina Orici. She's chief economist economist at T. Rowe Price, and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is also with us. Welcome to you both. Steve, I'm just going to start with, I'm just going to rain on this parade before I even let it start for just one quick second. Um, I, I guess jobless claims are a little more high frequency, but everything else is a little back. Well, I don't know. Maybe durable goods orders is forward looking. You tell me. Um, you can look into this report and you can see some stuff that might be create weakness uh, in the current quarter, which is the fourth quarter. Uh, inventories were a big pop, a big contribution to the uh, um, <clears throat> to the final number. Uh, that's probably going to uh, uh, come off a little bit this quarter. Government spending was another uh, uh, part of it. And then you got to step back and say, OK, for a year or two, we, we have been misforecasting. Is that the right word? <laughs> Badly forecasting the consumer. Um and getting it wrong and wrong and wrong. Uh, and the question becomes now, will the consumer finally, given the headwinds out there of higher interest rates, give it up? I guess I have my doubts because uh, the economists have been wrong for a very long time. We really don't know what the level of savings is because I was thinking, uh, Kelly, a year ago, you must remember people were on this show saying consumers have no more savings left from the pandemic. Well, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they sure seem to be spending. I think you have some interest income that's accruing. I think you finally have real wage gains out there. So I think those things are enough to keep the consumer going. So, yeah, I see the economy stepping down, but I don't see it going to zero. Um, and I think it's able to handle some of these headwinds that are confronting it. Blarina, I, I feel like you would agree based on you know what mm. I've seen for, for your own forecasts. So what does that mean for the Fed and, and the next couple of moves here? So this is interesting because we are seeing this resilience of the economy. And by the way, I think a lot of what's uh, supporting the consumer is the labor market. Aggregate incomes are strong and real disposable incomes are also improving now that inflation has decelerated. And then it seems almost contradictory uh, that the Fed would lean uh, against its uh, forward guidance that would hike one more time this year. But I think this has a lot to do with what, with what is happening in Treasury yields, especially in the long end of the curve. Hmm. I think we're seeing yields increase, even though the probability of near-term <clears throat> hikes, according to market pricing, has declined. And I think for the Fed, there seems to be some equivalence where maybe the markets and the financial condition tightening that we've seen since September could be doing the job for them. So that does not necessitate another hike. So... What happens then, you know, as we've seen, a couple of people are now thinking, Blarina, that maybe this this move has run its course. If yields don't keep going higher from here or maybe even come down a little bit, do you think the Fed would react to that by tightening? So I think it's very key that the increase in yields we've seen so far is sustainable. I think this is the key. We don't necessarily, need, the Fed doesn't necessarily need to see further yield increases from here, but any pullback in yields, a meaningful one that brings us uh, back to August levels, I think would be an indication that perhaps they need to deliver that extra hike hmm. if the economy remains as resilient as we've seen. And at this point, I have no reason 
looking at the data to believe that the labor market is going to crack anytime soon. Steve, what were you going to uh, say to that? Well, I think it might be worth taking a step back and realizing that nominal yields right now in the 10 year are 5%. I don't think that continues. Uh, uh, I, I, growth right now is 5%. Nominal yields are, are 5%. So that means nominal growth is actually a bit higher, maybe 8%. So it's not crazy to be in a world right now of higher interest rates. While that does exercise some restraint, I think the Fed may step back and say, yeah, it's exercising some restraint, but not entirely clear that it's unwarranted given where the economy is right now. So I think things do step down here, um, but it's not a crazy place to be right now with 5% yields on the 10-year. Blarina? So I think another element that we haven't discussed so far is the lags through which monetary policy tightening and higher yields are playing out in the real economy. Key here is the um, duration extension that we've seen both for households and for firms. A lot of a large portion of U.S. households and firms firms locked in lower interest rates before the Fed started hiking, and so that means that, of course, the increases in rates that we've seen so far, which are substantial, are going to bite, but this is going to happen with a longer lag. So I think the Fed here is a risk manager, and what they're trying to do here is saying, okay, we will give the economy some more time for this long lags to play out, uh, but then they are not precluding the possibility that if this resilience continues in 2024, they either can deliver fewer cuts than the summary of economic projections currently has in place, or they could resume resume hiking, depending on what's happening with wage inflation in particular. Yeah. Steve, I guess I'm looking to financial markets and just wondering, again, if, if this discussion is too backwards looking and relying too much on the data strength we've seen in the past couple of quarters, because the forward looking momentum here, whether it's from earnings, from the beige book, as you mentioned, uh, from the signals we're getting from markets, it just doesn't seem quite as encouraging. Yeah, I, I think people are really reluctant to buy into a, a positive story here, given the headwinds and the kind of reflexive, which, by the way, is backward looking, uh, you know, forecasting that people do. But it certainly seems like uh, if you look back at the forecasts, it's been wrong for a long time, Kelly. And I don't know when that, you know, if you give it up and suddenly you're like, OK, now I'm optimistic if. If that ends up being the, 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 the last straw and the wrong move to make at that time. But I, I think the earnings numbers have kind of held in there, given certainly the surge in yield stock prices uh, are down, but they've held in there relative to where they might be. Um, and like Lorena said, you have the wage gains. You also, by the way, I, I don't know if Lorena wants to correct me on this. I believe households are net lenders to the to the economy they are not net borrowers and so i was looking here that's really at, interesting uh, let me just get my glasses on i apologize here but i have august personal interest income is up 140 billion dollars uh, at an annual rate compared to the year ago period people have more money in, my, in their pockets i'm just wondering maybe all the seniors who are collecting those coupons now are booking those cruises, and maybe you can't get a room in the cruise right now. Yeah, Blurina, I'm also thinking about the irony that it's U.S. households who are receiving the largesse from the federal mm -hmm. government that threatens to bankrupt it. But again, I'm trying not to be too doom and gloom here. So give me the, I'll give you the last word. 
So I think this is important, the household balance sheet story here, it's key. So we spent over a decade deleveraging here in the U.S. post-GFC. So to Steve's point, uh, assets, net assets of households relative to their liabilities are at historical highs. So the balance sheet looks healthy. We have a demographic effect where baby boomers have a ton of savings and they don't have to uh, pay mortgages at 8% interest rates. And we're seeing that show up in resilience in both good spending for the consumer as well as services. Both components have been stronger yeah. than most people expected for this year. Steve? I, just real quick, I, I wonder, Kelly, rather than spending time to figure out why things will be bad, Maybe we should be spending some time figuring out why things haven't been as bad as we thought they were going to be. <laughs> I think this discussion was unpacking a lot of that. I, I absolutely take your point. Yes, we'll, agreed. We'll leave it there agreed. for now. Thank you both, our Steve Leisman and Blarina Arucci. Uh, we really appreciate your time joining us from T. Rowe Price today. Let's turn to markets where my next guest says stocks will be range-bound until the Fed gives the all-clear. He's liking corporate bonds here and some stock sector ETFs that he says can help investors avoid single-stock blow-ups. Joining me now is Mark Avalone. He's president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Markets good to see you again. What kind of mood are you in these days? Well, cautious at best, and days like today don't, don't help much. And in the absence of any clarity from the Fed, you're seeing what the market's doing. You've got earnings reports that really aren't that bad. We're finding a wrinkle or two in what we don't like about them, and then we're trashing America's best companies. And, and there really seems to be a bit of an overreaction, but that actually could eventually start to be the turning point. If this is a little bit of a capitulation in an overbought tech sector, this could be what sets us up for a better 2024. I just don't think it's going to be an easy ride to get you there. Know, I don't quite see. Everyone says, you know, the, the reaction is so undeserved. I'm not sure it is. Look at Microsoft, right? They put up better cloud numbers, helped by innovation, and their shares were up in a pretty ugly day. So yeah, take Google to the woodshed. I don't care. They need to keep up. Well, and, and you make good point. You know, Google's earnings on the YouTube and search side, the ad revenue, there was nothing wrong with that. And that's what the vast majority of the business is. It was the growth rate in cloud. And that's to my point that people are looking for problems where they may or may not exist. I think the valuations in the tech sector across the board got, got ridden up a little bit too high. And we've seen selective takedowns. Tesla earlier this month is a good example of that. And you're pointing out Microsoft, they may be the, the cream of the crop here in that space. But we're going to look to see Amazon's numbers. And if there's any reason for, for doubt, we're going to see, I think, an overreaction. And I think that's an opportunity for investors to get back into big tech hmm. when we have a slightly better valuation than we had two or three days ago. I also think it's really interesting at a time when a lot of people are saying this is a stock picker's environment because you have to literally look at balance sheets. Uh, you can't that you're kind of going the opposite way and saying, no, buy the sector if you're not sure exactly where each blow up is going to be. So in tech, for instance, what is it, the ITA? Well, th that, that would that's be defense, on the I'm sorry. Yes, defense sector. The XLK? But in tech, the XLK, yeah. and I'll tell you why. Who was on your air in the past 48 hours saying that Microsoft was going to have a great earnings number and a bounce up and Alphabet was going to have questionable earnings and a, bounce, and a big drop down? Right. It's almost impossible to, to time these quarterly earnings reports. 
And for the average investor to go and try to do that is extremely difficult. And for insiders, it is also very difficult. So in a turbulent market, and this looks more like a bear, feels more like a bear market than a bull market, I would rather be broadly diversified. In a bull market, we all look like heroes when we pick the fancy names and the winners. But in a bear market, I want to be more defensive protect client capital, and then strike hard when the Fed gives the all clear, and I preserve capital to make those excess gains later. That's yep. the strategy. And I, I mentioned tech, I mentioned defense, which is an area you've been kind of hiding all year long. I also just want you to explain why financials here when everyone, like you said, if you're feeling bearish, I get the valuation case, but are we so sure here that they're cheap enough based on what could be coming? Well, I really think it depends what financial you're looking for. And the financial, the XLF actually, large, high quality, the, the best of the best. Berkshire Hathley, Hathaway's actually in there. It's the mm -hmm. largest holding. You have True. JP Morgan. You have Visa, MasterCard. You have non-banks. So as an asset allocator that needs to be on the value side, you can't avoid financials. So we look for quality, broad diversification. We want to stay out of those community and regional banks that are going to struggle with net interest margin and loan losses. So that's why we migrate to the large cap ETF sector. Quick last word. A lot of people are getting more interested in bonds and you would steer them towards investment grade with a yield of 6% or higher. Why? Well, if you can take the volatility out of a portfolio, again, it depends on the investor, but if they want anything resembling a balanced portfolio, they live in a high-tech state. You could consider treasuries for the state tax exemption. But across the board, investment-grade corporates with a low risk of default and an intermediate duration can round out these wild swings we're going to see. And interestingly enough, after the Fed rate hike, the three-year average return on bonds is only a percentage point or two behind the average return in a three-year stock portfolio. So you can get capital gains plus a 6% interest rate, plus or minus I think most investors will be well served to consider that in that balanced portfolio risk area. All right, Mark Avalon, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Good to be here. With Potomac Wealth Advisors. Coming up, our triple header executive exchange. First up, the CEO of Raymond James joins us fresh off earnings to recap the quarter and give us his read on the health of the banks. Then the largest nat gas producer in the country, EQT, surprising the street with a profit in Q3. CEO Toby Rice weighs in on that and the flurry of deals we've seen in the energy space. And Empire State Realty Trust CEO Tony Malkin has a pulse check on office real estate in New York City. Looking forward to that. As we head to break, here's a look at the markets, which are only about 20 points, off, about 50 points off session lows for the Dow, I should say. Uh, the S&P down 1% right now. The Nasdaq, the worst performer. The 10-year yield drifting back up to 486. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Raymond James jumping 4% today after posting fourth quarter results. Despite falling short on the street's estimates for earnings, the company reported a record revenue of more than $3 billion, driven by higher interest rates and an uptick in loan demand. For more, let's bring in Raymond James CEO Paul Riley. Paul, thanks for joining us this quarter. Uh, great to be here again, Kelly. What do you think were the highlights at a time when your stock at least is above uh, the, the sort of crisis lows from earlier this year, but a lot of the banks are trading dangerously near those levels? I think it's a few things. First, driven really by our wealth management business and the diversified businesses we have. This is the third consecutive year of record revenue and profits in our year just ended. And I'm not sure who's done that else in the industry, and that's under zero interest rate environments and moving interest rate environments and high in the last you know 20 year rate environment so it's really a testament to the model the long-term view the firm has the always keeping flexible um, we have double the amount of capital to be uh, well capitalized a lot of liquidity so we even look at these times that look ahead to be a little more challenging as also opportunities given the chance that we're still in great financial shape as we look forward. But it really, the, the models really produce those results even you know, in three different market environments in a row. Before I ask about those opportunities, I just want to mention we spoke with Stiefel's Ronkoszewski yesterday, and they also have had a nice string of wealth management gains, which is in stark contrast to what we heard from Morgan Stanley a couple of weeks back. What, what explains that divergence? <laughs> well, it's just, you know, I think the recruiting success on the platforms is that we've had just steady across our independent employee and our uh, RIA platforms, just strong recruiting. We've had it kind of forever. It's been our growth story, growing to three to 4% in advisors, growing organically, recruiting them one by one. And most importantly in our model is, you know, less than 1% regretted attrition since I've been here and well before me. So uh, having a model where advisors are free to leave, we tell them they own their clients, they can go if they want to, we'll help them but they choose to stay because they feel we have a high support environment that we put clients first, we treat them as clients, and our investment in technology where we really believe that on the wealth platform for advisors, we have the leading technologies, just not by industry awards, but as advisors come and you know kick the tires here and check it out, they tell us that from the other firms. What, what can you tell us about capital markets? Because we sit over here and go, okay, we know it's been a pretty tough period there lately. Uh, maybe things start to pick up on the debt side. I don't, you know, there's probably a lot of different levers you can try to pull in a, in a, in a, again, in a rate environment that maybe you've been through, but maybe a lot of your uh, more junior team members ha never have. Yeah, if you've been around long enough, you've, you've gone through these cycles, just like uh, whether 09 or earlier, you go through periods in the market. And, and this is typical when economics start to change, is that you have buyers that say, okay, with the debt costs and cost of capital as debt costs rise, companies aren't worth as much. And sellers usually are much slower to react. So you see that in the markets. And even for us, as we look at opportunities, when debt 
you know, we could lock in debt at, you know, low, low single digits and it's up significantly if we wanted to finance something. It changes the return on the investment as you look long term. So until prices adjust a little bit, if this is the, you know, reality in the midterm to longer term at these rates, which aren't record rates, but people were used to free capital almost with free debt uh, right. for a while there. So that takes a while to happen. So it has to work through. And once people settle in on both sides, then you'll see activity pick up. The question's when, and that, that's the question we can't answer. Everybody likes to talk about green shoots when we saw a little bit more activity. And our activity was up uh, this last quarter we reported, uh, but we don't see anything growing really fast, right? There's some activity, but certainly not the levels that we would expect in a normal environment. What would you say your experience directly brings to bear for the for the firm at a time like this when you're thinking through how to be nimble and opportunistic and uh, kind of looking at the period and, and knowing there's going to be some opportunities, uh, as you hinted at before, uh, just walk us through what that you know means uh, across the rank and file and what that could look like. Yeah, I think part of it is just the message to think long term, you know, during the mini banking crisis, I, you know, in, um, in March last year, a lot of people said, oh, rates aren't going up and they locked in and panic and that put them in a precarious position. We just don't make those bets. We let our balance sheets float and people said, what happens if rates go up? And I go, well, we'll make more money. What happens if rates go down? We'll make less money, but we'll make money in either environment. And so keeping flexible and thinking long term, if people are overpaying short term, well, just ride it out. Economic reality comes back. And I think that's why through all these cycles, you know, we this year we had over 22% uh, return on uh, a non-tangible equity, <laughs> taking out non-tangible equity. And even in 09, our worst year, we had a 7.9% ROE and made money every quarter. And taking that long-term view, not taking bets, the opportunities come back. So you tell people, hey, been through tough times before, you know, whether the bankers or in the fixed income business, it's tough for them. Right. But the markets will come back. So hang in there, stay close to your clients, try to help them even though there's no business, just see if you can help and they'll remember that. That's a great point, especially about 09. Real quickly then, would you be looking at any uh, acquisitions at a time when we have seen a flurry of recent activity? Uh, you know, we're always open to that. If, you know, we're very particular that they have to be a cultural fit strategically they have to make sense that we have to be able to integrate them we believe they need to be part of the Raymond James family and we treat new and new people to the family just like people have been here a long time and then they have to be at the right price so I think there are more opportunities I'm not sure the price adjustments are all there hmm. from our side but sure we're if firms that are great fits we're we're always ready and we have the capital, but just all those four factors have to line up. That's interesting. You think they're not cheap enough yet, I, if, I'm, if I'm reading between the lines. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at in, where interest rates are happening with cash sorting and a little, you're going to have a midterm squeeze on margins. Uh, who knows when the Fed is done? Um, it just, it, it values that cash asset differently on, you know, somebody's balance sheet, just like it's had an impact on financial stocks. And if you believe that's here to stay, that's the value. But other peop sometimes people are thinking it's going to pop right back, which, you know, honestly, when rates were zero, our industry over-earned. Mm -hmm. And when rates go up, maybe we get squeezed and under-earned. And, you know, you have to say, okay, long-term, what's a reasonable spread and rate? And that's what the value is to us long-term. So you just have to wait till all those factors align and 
they're good fit and the people fit in and we can offer strategic advantages through our technology and other services. Well, we will be watching and waiting uh, to see if you guys do make a move. And in the meantime, Paul, it's great to have you here, especially on a, a day in a, a market stretch lately like this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kelly. Paul Riley, CEO of Raymond James. Coming up, shares of this company plunged after reportedly terminating merger talks with another big name in the space. If you think you know what it is, tweet me at KellyCNBC. We're going to reveal it after the break. And as we head to break, take a look at the sectors as real estate is the top sector of only three in the green today. It's up 2%. Consumer discretionary, tech, communication services all remain laggards with the NASDAQ down below the 200-day. And the chip makers, Meta and our parent company, Comcast, are each weighing on those groups. The exchange is back after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're close to session lows here. Dow's down 229 points. Uh, we're also seeing pressure, especially on the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ today. Western Digital, WDC, was the mystery chart we showed before the break. Many of you got it. Uh, shares are down as much as 16%, about 11% now after the digital storage company reportedly scrapped merger talks with Japan's Kyokushia, formerly known as Toshiba Memory. The companies couldn't reach an agreement with Bain Capital, Kyokushia's top shareholder. The deal would have created at a company that rivals Samsung, the leader in the flash memory space. Elsewhere, shares of Align Technology, the maker of Invisalign, are having their worst day since 2019. Look at that chart and their lowest level of this year for sure after posting an earnings miss and giving much lower guidance. are down 25% today. Mizuho highlighting how difficult a macro backdrop this could be for the name, saying with mortgage rates tripling, that leaves no money for teeth or terriers in a world of caution for the animal health stocks as well. And again, I'd say there's, there's a post-pandemic unwind if we've ever seen one. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Attorney General Merrick Garland released a statement a short time ago saying several federal agencies are helping in the search for a suspected mass shooter. Garland said the FBI, ATF, and U.S. Marshals are all on the ground in Maine now. A manhunt still underway for a 40-year-old individual named Robert Carr after police say he killed 18 people and injured at least 13 others at a bar and bowling alley, the deadliest shooting in America so far this year. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said today he is sending drones, weapons and ammunitions to Israel as it prepares for a ground invasion into Gaza. This is his latest effort to back Israel as he competes in the 2024 Republican primary. And Russia's military practiced a retaliatory nuclear strike during a drill today. President Vladimir Putin oversaw the simulation, which came hours after Parliament voted to rescind the country's ratification of a global nuclear test ban. State media showed Putin directing the exercise on a video call with top Russian officials. 
Kelly, back to you. Wonderful. Tyler, thanks. I'll see you shortly, Tyler Matheson. Coming up, EQT CEO Toby Rice joins us, fresh off reporting a surprise profit in the third quarter. What's driving the results? And could we see yet more consolidation in the energy space after Chevron and Exxon's big deals this month? The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of EQT about flat today, a little higher after the company reported a surprise profit and a revenue beat in their third quarter yesterday. While natural gas prices collapsed in the first half of this year amid record production and mild weather, EQT says high sales volume offset lower prices in the third quarter. They also finalized some acquisitions to increase future output. Joining me now for an exclusive interview is Toby Rice. He is the president and CEO of EQT. Toby, good to see you again. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Kelly. And if I'm not mistaken, we're seeing a pickup in deals on the natural gas side, aren't we? Well, we're seeing a pickup in consolidation efforts across the uh, energy industry as a whole. And it's not too hard to understand why that is so desirable. Just look at the benefits that you get from consolidation by looking at some of the deals that EQT has just recently done. We talked today about an update on our integration of the Tug Hill assets. And this consolidation has been a key for us to make the energy we produce cheaper, more reliable, and cleaner. From a cost perspective, Kelly, integrating these high quality assets is going to lower our cost structure by over 15 cents. That's before synergies. Uh, it's going to make the energy we produce more reliable by adding some high quality inventory. And it's going to allow us to supply the country with cheap, affordable gas for decades to come. And the last part, it makes the energy we produce cleaner. With these assets, uh, we're going to integrate their carbon footprint into our net zero program here at EQT, and we're going to zero out the emissions from the, the, these assets. So mm. you can look, look at what we're doing at, at, with Tug Hill at EQT to show how consolidation can really be the key to lowering the cost of the energy, make it more reliable and cleaner. Why consumers. is the inter, uh, industry still so fragmented? If I'm not mistaken, even you guys with market leadership position, we're not talking about the kind of mature industry market share where we typically end up with three or four major players. But could we be headed in that direction? Well, what we are seeing is we are seeing scale now actually start to create differentiating opportunities for energy producers. You know, this quarter was really a great example of EQT leveraging and showcasing investors the power of our platform and how that creates differentiated opportunities, how we're leveraging our scale, our deep, unpeer, un, unmatched uh, depth of industry, our really great cost structure our investment grade balance sheet, all of these things are creating opportunities that only companies of scale can do. Today, we announced the largest gas supply deal done in North America. You're only getting those deals done if you have confidence from gas buyers that you're going to deliver the most affordable, reliable gas for decades. Our inventory and low cost structure helps make that happen. Our investment grade balance sheet uh, supports these deals and lets them happen. And as a result, we're creating some really great opportunities where not only are our investors going to get uh, access to premium markets in the southeastern part of the United States, consumers in the southeastern part of the United States are going to get more secure, reliable supply, which is going to be even more important in this volatile world that we're in today. Would you have any qualms about or would you welcome if Chesapeake and Southwestern combine, which I believe would vault them ahead of EQT as the largest net gas focused player? Well, Kelly, that would certainly uh, help the story at EQT because we are known as being America's biggest natural gas producer. We want to be known as America's best natural gas producer. Hmm. And one of the things that we've done uh, quite thoughtfully over the past few years 
is when we're doing consolidation, we want to look at assets that are going to make us a better business. Sure, we're looking to check the box on, on the financial accretion. Uh, that's par for the course. But looking for assets and businesses that are going to lower our cost structure, deepen our high-quality inventory, and set us up to be the cleanest energy producer in the country, that's what we're looking to do. And we certainly have a differentiated position on that front. That's really interesting. You want to be better to be the best than the biggest. I, listen, that's certainly true in financial markets. But as you said, there's also some rewards to size. Um, could you just kind of weigh in a little bit? If there's anything we've learned, it's very hard to forecast the natural gas price. But I know a lot of consumers are looking forward to a little relief on heating bills this winter. Is this just a one-off? Are there still big geopolitical risks lurking around the corner? What do you think? Kelly, it seems like every week we see another event happening around the world that causes the that throws the energy markets into turmoil. You know, uh, 22, we were talking about the Russia situation with Ukraine. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about an LNG strike in Australia and what that's going to do to global energy supply. Now we've got this conflict in the Middle East. You know, one of the things that is touted at, on the Hill is this, this storyline that, you know, we complain a lot about the regulations and the, and, the, and the need to get more permit reform in place. So we can get more infrastructure built and better supply this world. And we hear people say that, well, it can't be that tough because the American energy producer is producing at record levels of energy. And while that is true, the big question remains, is that enough? And you look at the rampant inflation, the war in Ukraine fueled by petrostates, rising emissions. And for the first time in the last 20 years, global energy poverty has increasing. Clearly, the United States needs to do a lot more. Uh, unfortunately, until we get there, we are going to be living in a very energy short world that is going to lead to a lot of volatility. Very interesting. Toby, as always, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it today. All right. Thank you, Kelly. Toby Rice, CEO of EQT. Still to come, the tech-heavy Nasdaq, the underperformer today, and falling below a key technical level for the first time since March as investors digest those results from Google, Meta, and even Microsoft this week. And with Amazon after the bell today, Mike Santoli tells us if he expects more pain ahead or not. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, don't look now, but the tech trade is starting. If you don't know this, by the way, uh, it's showing a few cracks, shall we say. The NASDAQ, the SMH, and Apple today are all below their 200-day moving averages. What's the significance of that? Let's ask the expert. I'm going to be ex expert of all. Uh, Mike Santoli here on set with me to discuss. So can I tell you, so technicals. Yeah. You know, okay, so they dictate maybe some near-term trading ranges and weakness, but the mere fact that we were below it back in, in March, well, then we clearly yes. went on a big run. So is it bearish or bullish? It's not deterministic. It's, it's really more descriptive of the trend. Um, at this point, because the 200-day average itself is sloping up, it still says uptrend as opposed to in March, the S&P uh, average was, was about flat. So I don't think it's, it's really a, a light switch that turns on and off. But it does show you that demand has been flagging. And not only that, but the Nasdaq was way above its 200 days. So it was so kind of extremely stretched beyond that trend line. And now it's, it's corrected back. And to me, the reactions to the numbers in the big tech stocks just shows you 
to what degree people had excess faith that they were impervious to a lot that was going on and that the bar was so high. Meta's numbers were absolutely stellar for the last quarter. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a whisper of, okay, we can't endorse the most aggressive revenue estimates going forward. And all of a sudden it's game over. However, they're only going back to prices they were at one, two, three months ago. And I was pointing out to people, well, what about Microsoft? Because there was a, a, a nice reaction to a stock that outperformed yesterday. And then others were saying, well, don't check today because it's already back below uh, where it was. From it is. Now, pre-report. Microsoft is the one that seems to get the most benefit of the doubt. It just seems like it's, you know, the and best after those managed, cloud and numbers, deservedly so. And it seems like it's got it figured out. And it's kind of you trust them to get the next turn in terms of where uh, technology is going. Of course, the AI exposure, too. Um, but in general, I think what the market's doing is it's right now it's giving credence to the catch down hypothesis, which is the big growth stocks that had supported the S&P are now uh, kind of retracing lower. However, if you look over three years, the NASDAQ 100 and the equal weighted S&P 500 are in the exact same spot, Crazy. point to point. Crazy. And so it was like you, you traded this massive outperformance of the average stock last year uh, for massive underperformance this year. And you're kind of at you know, the same place. To me, the big question is, you know, in terms of the macro message, as somebody who tries to listen to the market more than tell it what it should be doing. Right. What, what do you think it's saying? The, mar- the macro message is the economy can't handle what rates are doing. The, the macro message from the market right now clearly is watch out, don't you think? Yes. Minus the fact that maybe rates are still at the levels that they're and, at. No, that's exactly right. And um, it could be wrong. I mean, obviously, sometimes the market kind of over uh, overshoots in terms of pricing in a growth scare. But there's no way. And, you know, I was saying yesterday, Whirlpool, not great guidance. Let's see how it trades. It got crushed today. It got crushed from seven times earnings. Seven. And it's down double digits today. So wow. I like to think that a lot is priced in. If you look at consumer finance and other types of stocks like that, that you would say these are already trading. in the crosshairs yep. of whatever happens. Uh, airlines are trading at exactly the cheap multiples where you're not supposed to buy them mm-hmm. because they're, they're, they're cyclicals. Uh, so. So what's the next thing to watch here then to see if we can uh, maybe it's just the incoming data because yeah. that's what turned things around in March. Who knows? It's it's definitely the incoming data. Look, the fact that we are getting super oversold, the S&P's checking back toward levels in April and May and it should make a stand before too long. Yields have to come in. Uh, for whatever reason, for whatever reason they've been up, they have to come in. I think below 4.8 on the 10-year would help a lot. Uh, and then the Fed next week if they basically say we hear you. <laughs> And then that could give a jolt. All right, Michael, thank you. As always, we'll see you soon. Mike Santoli. Still ahead, Empire State Realty Trust climbing today on better than expected. Well, here you go. Here's someone in the green. Uh, They even did a guidance raise. And the shares are up 44% from their 52-week low back in March. And it was some consumer strength that helped their third quarter results. CEO Tony Malkin explains next. Different story over at Harley-Davidson, though, whose shares are down 10% despite, and this is what we were just talking about, an earnings beat. As revenues and motorcycle shipments fell from the prior year, management on the call said consumers are sitting on the sidelines for big discretionary purchases as rates rise. They also flagged delinquencies up, quote, a little bit year over year. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Is real estate resilient? Shares of Empire State Realty Trust up 5% today after reporting slight upticks in commercial and office occupancy in yesterday's results. But can these trends last? Joining us now for an exclusive exchange interview is Empire State Realty Trust Chairman and CEO Anthony Malcolm. Welcome back. Good to see you. Good to see you. And we're, we're happy to have a positive story to tell here. I just hope we're not, you know, going to look back and go, ah, oh, we didn't see what was coming. 
Well, you know, look, we continue to put points on the board. 3Q beat expectations. We raised our full year guidance. It's our ninth consecutive quarter of positive marks on our Manhattan office leasing. It's our seventh consecutive quarter in which we achieved positive least rate absorption on our portfolio. We're just, uh, people want our product. We're at the top of our tier in our accessible price range. And we've got a good story to tell and the tenants want it. Yeah, so what are we learning about the state of New York City? I, I think the mayor made some comments about how uh, we're back to kind of pre-pandemic levels of, of office workers or something to that. But we know that's not true for all of the office real estate, but obviously, like you said, yours a little bit more, I don't want to say low cost, but, but kind of average has clearly helped uh, fill things back up. Well, first of all, we're modernized and monetized, energy efficient with indoor environmental quality and great locations, future-ready real estate, number one. Number two, best balance sheet, lowest leverage of all the New York City office REITs. When you put that together with uh, the fact that we are at the top of our tier, there are tiers. We're in a pricing tier, which is the deepest segment of the market, and there's a lot of demand there, and we're a flight to quality in that. So we're really outpacing the, the market with our performance. So I guess the question would be, okay, real estate is broadly taking a hit from higher rates because investors are finding, you know, it's competing for capital. It's maybe undermining some business models. Obviously, there's concerns about the bank's exposure. I guess in your case, are there idiosyncrasies, for instance, like your your um, your deck uh, up there on the Empire State Building that can help act as a cushion or maybe an offset uh, to some of the headwinds? I think there are two pieces here. One, we've got four drivers, office, destination attraction, number one attraction in the United States, according to TripAdvisor, for the second year in a row. We also have retail, and we traded out of a bunch of our suburban office and 1031 uh, exchanges into Manhattan residential. The second thing is you know, we positioned our balance sheet always to be ready for what might go wrong. So we've got no floating rate debt, best balance sheet of all of our peers, and uh, and, and we locked in long uh, long-term debt. So from our perspective, we're in a position to go forward and take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. And if you could peer around the corner, you should, you also signed some leases with LinkedIn and Starbucks, so some commercial activity there as well. As we know, New York uh, City foot traffic is picking back up. If you could peer around the corner for 2024 then, how do you position, like the, the avoiding floating rate debt, brilliant strategic move, obviously, but what are the next kind of chess moves to watch? Well, I think, first of all, we want to make sure we have runway. So we are in a position always to take advantage of opportunity. And by that, I mean acquisitions. Uh, number two, we really want to continue to emphasize our difference in that we can cooperate and help with our tenants' operations and their choices for energy-efficient spaces, which are sustainable. Uh, number one, our, our locations are fantastic. And remember, this is the deepest part of the market. And we really didn't lever up and do transactions during the boom-boom period leading up to the current credit crunch. So we're in a good spot, and and that's shown in people coming to us. Keep in mind, by the way, that's Starbucks. That's an office lease. That's not another retail lease. So uh, and, and LinkedIn is an office lease. So we're really thrilled. We're really pleased, and, and we're feeling very positive. All right. Well, we're happy to have a positive story to tell today. Anthony, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Anthony Melk and Embraer State Realty Trust. That does it for The Exchange. But for more analysis on markets and the economy, you can sign up for my newsletter over at cnbc.com slash newsletters or just scan that QR code. Next on Power Lunch, Sam Bankman-Fried taking the stand at his own trial. We'll have the latest and what could be behind that decision. Power Lunch starts on the other side of this break. 
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.